it's the first week of December, and because it's the first week of December, it's also the first Sunday of Advent. And we want to talk about that a little bit. The church history is a tradition that sets aside the four weeks leading up to Christmas. They call it the Advent season. And Advent, if you didn't know, it simply means um, arrival. And so it's the waiting for the arrival of, it could be a notable person or an event, and for us it's a, the arrival of Jesus. We're waiting for the arrival of Jesus at Christmas. And each of the weeks of Advent has a, a particular theme, and, and uh, generally week one is hope, week two is peace, week three is love, and week four is joy. And as part of the ways that these weeks are celebrated um, and remembered is that the church historically has what's called an Advent wreath. And we've been doing this the last couple of years where we have an Advent wreath and and what we do is every single week we light one of the candles of the Advent wreath to to remember that, hey, it's it's getting closer, it's getting closer, Jesus is coming. And the the Advent wreath um, has some symbolism to it. It has three candles that are purple and one that's pink and one that's white. And the, the purple candles um, symbolize royalty, the royalty of Jesus. And those are the first three we write. The pink candle represents joy because it's saying he's almost here. And the white candle is the candle that we, that we light on Christmas Eve. And it's saying he has arrived. So today what we do is we light the first candle in our Advent wreath And if you can remember, what did I say the first candle symbolized? Hope. It says the prophecy candle. It's talking about the hope in the fulfillment of prophecy. And and that we can trust future prophecy that the Bible says things are going to happen because what it said about the past has already happened. You see, the story of Jesus' birth actually began thousands of years before Jesus was born. God had promised through scripture, through, through prophets, um, to the people of Israel that he was going to provide a deliverer. Um, the term that they understood was Messiah or Savior. To save them from their sins is what he meant. They kind of thought it had a lot more to do with saving them from political oppression. But God had promised his deliverer was coming. And for centuries, the people had waited with great hope for the Messiah to come. One of the prophets that prophesied about his coming um, was Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 7, he wrote this. He says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel, God with us. He said, listen, there's one coming. God's going to give you a sign. This virgin, this baby's coming. He's coming in a, a special way. And there's all these prophecies, including this one throughout Scripture, promising that one day Jesus would come. And so Jesus isn't just God coming into the world, poof, he happened one day. Jesus is the fulfillment of prophecy. For centuries, people had hoped for Jesus' coming, and as he was promised to come, he came. Now, they didn't understand a lot of the prophecies, but he fulfills prophecies, and he came. So at Christmas, what we do with the idea of hope, it's a time to renew this idea in hope. This idea that what God promised is going to come to pass. That we can, we can bank on it. We can put our hope in it. That hope that what God has promised will happen. And one of the most important promises that we can remember at Christmas is that Jesus, in fulfillment of prophecy, came into our world. But he made a promise. 
a prophecy. He said this, I'm going to come again. So based on the first coming, we can trust the promise that says Jesus is going to come again. Jesus is coming again. And when he comes, he will establish his kingdom fully and here in reality and restore all things. Remember back last May, we all read together the book, um, All Things New. And we read that for our missions month. And it talked about the restoration of all things. And that, that that's the hope. That's the, we, have, we have hope in that promise, the restoration and renewal of a new heaven and a new earth and our lives restored to what they're supposed to have been without the negative effects of sin. He's going to heal all our brokenness. We're going to live for eternity with him in joy. Christmas renews our hope in a blessed future in Christ. So we light the first candle today and we say, listen, it's not about Santa Claus, it's not about presents, it's about hope. Jesus came once, and he's going to come again. So we start off the Advent season today with what? Hope. All right. So not only is today um, the first day of Advent, the day of, remember, hope, it's also the final day of our Fruits of the Spirit series. And I hope that this series has been really beneficial for you. Matter of fact, we, we, some, we, we do our best to figure out if things are working. And so what we did, you know, the booklets that a lot of you received uh, that, you, that you took about the Fruit of the, Spirit, Fruit of the Spirit series that were ideas that you could, we'd preach a sermon, your kids would have the same message on Sunday morning, and you'd have seven days to try to say, let's deal with this as a family, let's talk about it as a family. And one of the ways we try to evaluate is that, it, is that helping at all is, are the materials that we provide leaving the desk? <laughs> In other words, we put them available, and we actually made more this year. And you know how many booklets we have left? I looked today. One. <laughs> that means that every, most of you, as families, took this home and have spent some time um, trying to say, Lord Jesus, um, by your Spirit, would you work inside of me so that these character qualities... Will, be, will be, grow in me, mature in me, and they'll become more of a mark of my home and my family and my, and my personal life. And so I'm really glad that you've been participating in that. And now we come today to the end of it. So I want to begin today in a little, little different way. I'm going to show you a picture of somebody. Who is that? Nancy Reagan. Does anybody under 30 know who that is? Does anybody under th- who? Okay, you do. And who is Nancy Reagan? You can consult with each other. So, so she was President Ronald Reagan's wife, and uh, um, who is Ronald Reagan's passed away, and and uh, she is his. She was. She is his wife, or was his wife, and she was known for something. You know how first ladies um, usually have a cause. She had a cause, and. Um, her cause was helping people get off drug addiction. Remember that? Okay. And there was a phrase that Nancy Reagan um, became known for during that period of time. Does anybody know what the phrase is? Just say, no. Just say no. Wow, it worked. Just say no. And it was in, in, in the concept of just say no to taking drugs, just say no to alcohol abuse. Now here's my question. No, no disrespect to Nancy Reagan. You know, thank the Lord for her work on helping people overcome drug addiction. Um, but 
in a big picture, do you think the Just Say No campaign worked? It didn't, did it? Um, drug and alcohol abuse are worse now than they've ever been. Our prisons are filled. The number one, I talked to our, our sheriff a while back. He said the entire um, prison population is different than it used to be, that now almost every single person in prison is directly tied to heroin. Almost every one. Because if they, they steal to get drugs, you know, or whatever else. And so um, the Just Say No campaign didn't work. It's actually worse in that area than it ever was. Now, am I glad Nancy Reagan did it? Yes, but did it work? Not really. Here's a question. Why didn't it work? Here's why it didn't work. Because people need more than a slogan to overcome temptation. They need the power of God working in their lives. And friends, that's what the fruit of the Spirit, if you've got this by now, nine weeks into it, that's what the fruit of the Spirit is all about. Um, it's all about the power of God in our lives transforming us into people who are more like Jesus than we were the day before. People who, by the power of God, can overcome the normal, sinful, harmful ways of the world around us and live lives of freedom in Christ. That's what the Apostle Paul is talking about, the fruit of the Spirit. We can live better lives than, than we can without him. And he wants to help us grow. And this is what the fruit, this is what the fruit of the Spirit is. Um, and this is what the fruit of the Spirit that we're going to talk about today really is all about. So let's read our text that we've been going over for the last nine weeks together for the last time. You ought to be able to know it by heart. That's why we've been reading it every week. So it just gets bored into our spirits. Galatians 5, 22 and 23 says this. Let's read it together. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. So today we come to the last one. Self-control. Self-control, it's all about God by His Spirit empowering us to be able to just say no to things which are harmful and destructive and to say yes to those things that are beneficial in our lives. It's the power to live the life and make the decisions that you know are God's best for you. It's not making wrong decisions that lead to harm and regret. It's the Spirit empowering you to be in control of yourself instead of circumstances controlling you. You see, God wants self-control to be a quality. God inspired, God empowered self-control to be a quality that is growing in each and every one of us. So the question is, it has to be this, if God wants me to be more self-controlled by the power of the Spirit, how do I live a more self-controlled life? How do I partner with the Holy Spirit in becoming a person? I could say, I'm a self-controlled person. Again, remembering, not self-control in the sense of I'm just trying harder, but self-control in the fact that the Spirit is empowering me to be able to make the choices that are better because He's giving me the strength to do it. So what are, how do we live self-controlled lives? And there's, there's probably a dozen things I could talk about today. But I think there's two that are really relevant that we want to get. That I think if we get these, we'll, we'll move towards being more self-controlled people by the power of the Holy Spirit. And these are the two. Number one, I'll tell you them, then we'll explain them. Number one, stand on your identity in Christ. Stand, and I'll explain that, stand on your identity 
in Christ. And number two, make God's word your word. I'll explain that after we do the first one. Make God's word your word. You see, there's a lot more to that than just saying, I know the Bible. Make God's word your word. So the first one, stand on your identity in Christ. I'm going to start to explain this by telling you a story about me. When I was in grade school, um, grade school was really difficult for me as a kid. I had a significant hearing loss. That's why I have hearing aids that I make jokes about all the time. Had a significant hearing loss that was undiagnosed. So you know what people thought about me? All the teachers, my parents. This is the word they use for me. He's a bullheaded. Say bullheaded. <laughs> bullheaded. That's what they said. He was bullheaded that they always thought I was unattentive or rebellious when the reality is I couldn't hear. You know how they figured out? I don't know. They had no idea how I slipped through the cracks. I went to doctors and all that stuff, how I slipped through the cracks. You know how they found out I couldn't hear? One day my dad was in the house and they were having, we were having ice cream. And we didn't know, like, I don't know about you guys, you have dessert a lot. We never had dessert. It just it wasn't part of our family. My dad was like, I'd rather eat vegetables than anything with sugar in them. And so um, he just didn't like sweets, so we didn't have sweets. And one day we had ice cream in the house. And my dad, as the story goes, was standing behind me and he said, Mark, do you want some ice cream? And bullheaded Mark wouldn't respond. Mark, do you want some ice cream? No response. Finally, my dad walked around in front of me and said, Mark, do you want some ice cream? Oh, yeah, I want some ice cream. And he's like, this kid can't hear. How can't he hear? And so Mark wasn't bullheaded. Mark was deaf. <laughs> you know, there's a big difference. And there was another problem in grade school for me. Um, I had mild dyslexia. I still do. If you give me numbers ever, I always read them back to you because I say them backwards all the time. I still, in our class on Wednesday night, I had two teachers in the class this year in our Wednesday night formation classes who helped me with one of the things that's part of my dyslexia. If you tell me to write a letter, a word, it has a B or a D in it, I can't, re- I can't figure out which way it goes. I don't know which way the B goes. And two ladies in the same night came up to me with a little word written down. It said, bed. No teacher had ever showed me that. I said, oh, one's a headboard, one's a footboard. Bed, I can figure out at 55 almost, I can figure out which way a B goes and which way a D goes. And so in grade school, um, I had problems, mild dyslexia, and I had a difficult time reading. And so everyone, including myself, thought I was, this is this, because Mark's kind of a below average kid. He's a little, little dense, little hard, little hard-headed, a little stubborn, and that's what they thought of Mark. Well, it was in grade school that um, my hearing was fixed. While I was in grade school, they, they fixed my hearing, did some surgery on my ears, and I, could, and I didn't have hearing aids for years and years and years, and I could hear um, normally. And in grade school, they started figuring out what my, um, my reading issues were, and they started working with me, and I could read in grade school. You know, I figured it out by the time I got fifth grade. I was, I was reading, you know, pretty well. And they fixed those things. But in the whole time, everybody... Even my teachers, I say particularly my teachers, thought, well, he's just a bullheaded kid who was a little difficult and, and didn't maybe try real hard or something. That's what they thought because that's who I had been. That was my identity. But then coming out of grade school, none of have ever told you this story, but coming out of grade school, I went from, I lived in Cedarburg. I went from Westlawn Elementary to Webster Middle School. One of the first years, Web, I think the second year Webster was open. I went to Webster Middle School. And... I get there, and between the years, I begged my parents, because I please go to summer school. I'm the only kid on the planet who ever asked, begged to go to summer school. 
because I thought I was this dumb kid and I was so afraid I would do poorly. So they let me go to summer school. I went to summer school and I came into my sixth grade and in between, I remember my dad sitting me down. I don't remember a whole lot from my whole life, but I remember my dad sitting me down and saying, Mark, you can become anybody you want to become. You got a fresh start. No one really knows you. The teachers don't know you. You can have a brand new, fresh start in a brand new school. And, and you know, so you have your one little grade school. Now you have all these grade schools together and you don't really know anybody. You're a brand new person in a brand new world. And guess what? I went to a brand new school and I became a brand new person. I sort of worked really hard and no one knew my, no one knew my past. They didn't say, well, he's kind of the kid that never listened because he couldn't hear. Um... They just gave me a brand new start. And guess what? I went from being the kind of kid they said was, oh, he's kind of dumb, to suddenly in a little while it was like, oh, he's one of the smart students. At one point in the term, like, oh, he's one of our eggheads. And I'm like, this kid ain't no egghead. You know? And I said, I'm not, I'm not unusually smart. I just try really hard. But what happened is the perception began to change, and people began, I started being known as, the, as one of the good academic students. And that went through middle school and high school and all the way through college. And so it was, it was, a, it was my image was, oh, Mark is a, is a good academic. But here's what I learned during that transition, because the only one who lived it was me. Here's what I learned. I was the same person in grade school that I was in middle school and high school and college. I was the same person. I had the same intelligence. I tried just as hard, because I knew how hard I tried. I tried just as hard, um, but suddenly I got in a new situation, and I thought different of myself, and other people thought different of me, and I created, or I had, a new identity. But I wasn't any more intelligent than I ever was in grade school. See, when I believed I could, and you could fill in the blank, I could, blank, blank, blank. When I believed I could, instead of going through life saying, I can't, it changed how I acted, it changed what I believed about myself, and it changed how people began to perceive me and act towards me. The thing that changed was my identity. I, what I believed about myself is what changed. Same person, but people looked at me different. Now this idea of identity has enormous ramifications in the Christian life. It's one thing for a grade school kid going into middle school. That's important. Identity really matters. But in the Christian life, it makes all the difference in the world. Knowing who we are in Christ makes all the difference when it comes to what I do and what I don't do. What I believe I can do and what I say I can't do. And what I found in my life, and it's the truth of Scripture, if you believe you can because it's in line with God and you're looking to His power, it happens. But if you just think, I'm going to give in to that because this is who I am, you'll live that way. So your identity in Christ makes all the difference in the world. Galatians 2.20 speaks to our true identity. It says this, I have been crucified with Christ... And it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. That's a Christian's true identity. My old life is dead. You need a new start? 
In Christ, you get a new start. Your old life is dead. Your old limitations, your own wrong beliefs, they're dead. And now Christ lives in me. This is truth. This is not religious fairy tale stuff. In Christ, my old life died and Jesus now lives inside of me by his spirit. My identity is wrapped up in Jesus. All his wisdom, all his power is available to me and I believe it because it's my true identity. If I see myself like this, it changes everything. I know Jesus doesn't give in to temptation because his identity says he doesn't. So in Christ, he's in me, so I don't give in to temptation. Why? Because it's just a fact about who I am. Now I've got a picture that's going to help you understand this, maybe a little bit, a funny picture I saw on Facebook recently. You know who that is? Okay, somebody, anyone else see this recently on Facebook? It's a race. It's Superman, The Flash, and Batman. And, okay, Superman's fast. He can fly, right? And The Flash is called The Flash because he can run, but look what Superman's thinking. He's saying this, I am Batman. You've watched the movies, I am Batman. I am Batman. And that's what he's saying to himself. He said, I believe in myself. He's in the race. He's going to win. Because he's saying, I am Batman. Because here's the reality. Who you, what you believe about yourself matters. Let me show you how this works in your life as far as tied to self-control. Grab your Bibles and turn with me to Matthew chapter 4. In Matthew chapter 4, we're going to read in just a minute. It's coming right on the heels of Jesus being um, baptized. If you remember when Jesus is baptized, remember what happens? The Holy Spirit descends upon him. He's filled with the Spirit. He has this brand new life as far as he's been living for God, but now in the human form, and now the Spirit descends upon him in a powerful way. And immediately you would think they're going to go have a, they're going to go have a revival service. No, what happens? The Spirit leads them to be tempted. So look at Matthew chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Read down to verse 11. It says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. How would you like that? And after after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry, and the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And then the devil took him into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you. And on the other hand, they will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, On the other hand, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. And then Jesus said to him, go, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And then the devil left him and behold, angels came and began to minister to him. I want to point out something to you in this text that I'm I'm imagining you might not have seen before. And it's this. Ask, Ask this question of yourself. What was the one primary thing the devil did to try to attack Jesus? 
here's the difference. He tried to attack his identity. That's what he attacked. He tried to attack his identity. Look at what the devil says in tempting him. The devil says this two times, and I think we can refer, he probably did it three times, but it doesn't matter. But two times, the first two temptations, he frames his temptation in a very specific way. If you are the Son of God, do this. If, if you are who you claim, if your identity is really this, then you do that. He attacked his identity. What he was really saying is, you're not really the Son of God. Those things that they have been written about you aren't really true. He attacks the identity, what Jesus believed about himself. No one else was there. He approaches Jesus and the way he says, I can attack you and get you to do what's wrong is to get you not to believe who you really are. If you are the son of God. See, I believe this, the type of temptation didn't really matter. I think that's why there are three different kinds of temptation. I don't think the type of temptation mattered. What mattered to the devil was getting him to question his identity and then take a shortcut, because he didn't believe in who he was, a shortcut in his life. That's what the three temptations were, the shortcuts. Provide for himself instead of trusting in God was the stone and the bread. Test God, jump off the pinnacle. Find success apart from God, get all the glory of the world. Those things were all shortcuts if he didn't really believe who he really was. Friends, understand something. The devil doesn't want you to believe the truth about who you are in Christ. Because if you believe the truth, it will change how you see yourself, and as a result, it will change how you act in this world. You will be self-controlled because you know that that's what is really true about you in Christ, that you're an overcomer in Christ. You can say no because of the Spirit to the wrong things, and you can say yes to the right things because of the power of the Spirit in you, which is all based on who you are in Christ. It's your identity. The beginning of the chapter um, that lists the fruit of the Spirit, um, in Galatians 5, that we've been reading for all these nine weeks now, in the beginning of that chapter, it starts with this verse. Galatians 5, 1, it says this. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to the yoke of slavery. You want to know something, friends? That's your identity in Christ. You are free from the chains of sin. You do not need to be controlled by slavery to sin anymore because your identity in Christ is an identity of freedom. If you believe it and you receive it, and you embody it. It will empower you to live this truth out, to live in your freedom. That's why the devil attacks your identity. He wants you to believe. You know what he wants you to believe about you? You know what he wanted me to believe about me? Mark, you're just too dumb to do anything. You're just dumb. You're a bullhead. You're just dumb. Guess what? It's not true. You know what he wants you to believe about you? You're weak. You're dumb. You can't, whatever that is. You can't stop drinking. You can't stop drugs. You can't stop porn. You can't stop lying. You can't stop cheating. All of those things the devil wants you to believe. You can't. He wants you to believe that's your identity. 
If he can rob you of your identity, he can keep you in bondage. Friends, that's the opposite of spirit-empowered self-control. Self-control says, I can live according to my identity. I can choose to say no to what is detrimental, and I can choose to say yes to what is beneficial, because I walk with the Spirit, and I've been transformed into a brand new person. The old is gone, the new has come. That's who I am in Christ. So when the devil says to you, if you are free, you go, if, if, devil just shut your mouth, if I am free, the Bible says that's my identity, if you can say no that, if, what do you mean if, God said yes, I don't care what you say. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. That's my identity. You stand upon your identity. You confess your identity. You say, that's who I am in Christ. That's how you become an overcomer. That's what self-control is all about. There's no ifs. Say, this is who I am in Christ. That's where self-control starts. So it starts by standing on your true identity. But then it continues. It continues by determining something in your life by determining to make God's word your word. I'll explain that. That's the next step in living a self-controlled life. Think back to Jesus, the three temptations. In each case, he chose to make God's word his word. In other words, he didn't try to rationalize um, what the situation away and say, well, you know what? It really would. I will eventually be worshipped by everybody. So why don't I just take this way? He didn't do that. He didn't try to rationalize God's way away. He didn't try to disregard what God's word said. In each current case, he answered Satan this way: "It is written." This is what God's word says. God says it. It's His word. I'm going to make it my word. I'm not going. It's not up for debate. Let's remember something about uh, Christian self-control. It's more than just trying real hard to just say no. It's a life surrendered to walking in the reality of the Spirit. It's seeking the Spirit's guidance and empowerment. So Christian self-control is the ability to choose to live in line with what God says is good and best for your life. And in order to do that, we need to know what choices to make in life all the time. Well, guess what? God has made a lot of those choices for us already in life. He's given to them to us, given them to us through the scriptures, through the Bible. You see, I don't have to wrestle with what to do in many situations because God has already made it clear. I know what to do. So if I determine to make God's word my word, then some things that could trip me up are non-issues because I won't even entertain the option of doing the contrary. Because I just say, God's word is my word. Here's what we do a lot of times, friends, though. We say, God's word is cool. God's word is something. God's word is interesting. God's word is truth. But it's not necessarily my word. We do it all the time. Well, I think this. And you know, I've said this before, and people get mad at me when I say it, but I say, sometimes people come to my office and say, well, pastor, I think, and I really, I've been doing this long enough, 30 years, I go, I don't care what you think. And I really say, I don't care. Because God's word says, you have a choice to make. You have a choice to make. 
If you're going to live the self-controlled life, the empowered self-controlled life, part of what you need is God's empowered, inspired word to show you how to live. And if we live in this generation that just says, you have your right to make all your choices, I'm telling you, you can, but you will be harmed because of that, that mentality, that theology. A key to self-control is saying, I mean, living the best life, that's what self-control is about, living the best life is saying, God's word is my word, it's not up for debate. Well, let me give you an example of this from Scripture. Turn your Bible all the way back to the beginning, Genesis, Genesis chapter 39. Genesis 39. Story of Joseph. You know Joseph. Joseph's the one who, who uh, God, he has dreams that he's going to be great and his father loves him more than the rest, gives him a coat, his brothers throw him in a pit, sell him as a slave. He ends up in slavery in Egypt. A guy named Potiphar um, buys him as a servant. God's blessings are with him. He rises to, to leadership in his servant's house. Eventually, he's going to rise to leadership in Egypt. But at this case, he's having a not-so-good day. Genesis 39, starting in verse 6. So he left everything he owned in Joseph's charge. Um, as Potiphar, the boss, leaves everything in Joseph's care. And with him there, he did not concern himself with anything except the food which he ate. Now, Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And it came about after these things that his master's wife looked with desire at Joseph, and she said, lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, behold, with me here, my master does not concern himself with anything in in the house, and that he has put all that he owns under my charge. There is no one greater in this house than I, and he has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then could I do this great evil and sin against God? And she spoke to Joseph day after day. He did not listen to her, to lie beside her, to be with her. Now it happened one day that that he went into the house to do some of his work, and none of the men of the household was there inside. And she caught him by his garment and said, Lie with me. And he left his garment in her hand and fled and went outside. And the rest of the story is he ends up going to prison for it. Let's remember something about this story. This isn't some made-up story. These are real people. Somebody didn't say, well, let me give you an example and make it up. These are real people. Joseph was a real man, a young man. Can you imagine the very real temptation he was experiencing, the turmoil inside of himself? He's risen to this power. He has everything. Now this lady, um, wealthy lady, is saying, I want you to be with me. He could literally have had it all, even his boss's wife. Friends, these are the kinds of situations that we think about when we think about self-control. How many times have you made the wrong choice in a situation? Maybe not as severe in this, but maybe as severe as this. And you look back, and you wish you could have exercised a greater level of self-control. You could have chose the better path because you really knew it was a better path. Friends, look how easily Joseph made the decision to do the right thing that he didn't have to regret later. Look what he says. How could I do this great evil and sin against God? What's he referring to? He knew God's word. He knew the law. The law said, thou shalt not commit adultery. 
he had determined long before this encounter to make God's word his word. So here's the deal. There was no decision to be made. That's the mistake we make. If you don't settle in your heart, God's word's your word, you come into every situation brand new, trying to figure out what are you going to do, and you try to muster the control to do the right thing because it's not defied, you have not set it in your heart that God already made some decisions for you that you don't even have to entertain the idea. He said, how could I do this? The Bible says, he said, the law says, thou shalt not commit adultery. He had determined to make God's word his word, so there was no decision to be made. The decision was already made. So guess what? No agony, no stress, just self-control, empowered self-control. Now, it ended up costing him in jail, getting tossed in jail. God delivered him out of that, and he ends up being number two in Egypt and rescues his whole family. So listen, listen, you go God's way, and it works. No agony, no stress, just self-control when God, when you choose to make God's word your God, your word. He was empowered to do the right thing by the Spirit-empowered Word of God. You have this empower, incredibly empowering tool that God has gifted you with to help you to live on the right path of your blessing and your goodness. Friends, it becomes a lot easier to be self-controlled when you determine in advance that God's Word on any matter is your Word on any matter. So you don't have to discuss it. You don't have to think about it. You don't have to agonize about it. So you know what? You know what self-control is all about here? It's about saying, God inspired... Remember, this is about the Spirit helping us. Who inspired the Bible? The Spirit of God. It's Spirit-empowered. It's Spirit-inspired. God's already empowered you with that. But you're going to choose to say, it's my word. So you say, God's word's my word. And then you stand upon your identity in Christ. Who am I? I'm an overcomer. I live in freedom because I died to the old. I lived to Jesus. This is the truth about who I am. Some of you believe lies about yourself. You're not dumb. You're not stupid. You're not incapable. You are, you are wonderfully and beautifully made by Jesus, by God. And His Spirit dwells within you. You can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. That's what self-control is all about. Now, I know this as we wrap up. Maybe self-control is a challenge for you to this point because you didn't get some of these things. I hope what you see today is a path forward. You can't change the past, but you can change today and tomorrow. But you need to walk in the right path. You need to you need to begin to confess the truth about who you are in Christ. You need to begin to say it out loud. You need to look in a mirror once in a while, every day maybe, and say, take Galatians 2.20 and read it out loud and say, this is the truth of who I am, or, or um, Galatians 5.1, and read it every day and say, this is the truth of who I am. This is what God says I am. I don't care what you say I am or you say I am. I care what he says I am, and that's what he says. You need to say it out loud. You need to confess the truth. Then you need to make a choice today to let God's word always be your guide, especially in what could be the most difficult, heated situations in your life. Because he's, he's rescued you from those already. You want to make your life difficult? Get into those tough spots. Even put yourself in that tough spot. You know what? Based on that story, that's why I don't meet with ladies alone ever. 
Joseph didn't have a choice. You know, I never, ever, ever meet with a lady alone. Never have. 30 years of pastoring. Don't do it. You know why? Because no one can make an accusation against me that's false. Right? Joseph was powerless. But you know what? God's word gives you some clear parameters. I'm going to follow God's word. No matter what anybody else says. So confess the truth about who you are in Christ and choose now to let God's word always be your guide and you will live a self-controlled, best path life. Amen? Amen. Let's stand together. Father, we thank you that you are a very practical God, that you love us so much you want us to be overcomers, you tell us that's who we are, but then you show us how to do it. And Lord, I pray this for this wonderful church family, for my brothers and my sisters and myself. Lord, would you help the realities of this, of this one particular fruit of the Spirit to just grow and thrive in us as we choose to partner with you in the ministry of maturity. Some of us in here today have to make a hard decision. And it's this. I've got to choose honestly to say, in all circumstances, God's word is my word. And I have some real clear ideas of what God wants for me from his word. But I have lived a life where I pick and choose and I don't do it consistently. And because of that, I might be living a life that feels okay, but it's not the best of what God has for me. God, by your spirit, would you show us that you have something better? Show us that you have a life of power and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit as we make your word our word. And then, Lord, I pray this. For any person in here who does not believe the truth about who they are, and Lord, all of us in many capacities don't. There's so many areas in my life that I don't. Lord, would you speak to our hearts today? Speak by that still small voice into our hearts today and let us hear your voice reminding us of who you are, who you say we are. And I pray that a gift upon every person in this place today. Now, Lord Jesus, as we walk from this place, would you help us walk in the strength of self-control into a world that's a mess and shine like lights in the darkness drawing people to you so that you can bring wholeness and freedom to those we encounter. So we we surrender ourselves to your mission in a dark world. Thank you, Jesus.